This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. You know, when you're privileged to be able to talk about uh, historic moments in our lives, things that are familiar to all of us, or you get a chance to sit in a studio with people who are well-known by all of you. I'm talking about you living right now in the Philippines, people who are living in Switzerland, people who are living all over the world, listening to The God Show, and, and sharing familiar names, places, and events. You'll know how really annoying it is when you run into dozens and dozens and dozens of people who say when the subject of Woodstock comes up. And it's not enough for them to say, oh, greatest music in the 60s. No. So many of them say, I was there. Oh, yeah, no, 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 I was there. I'm surprised that you didn't see me in the documentaries. Or when Hank Aaron hit the home run. Or when Martin Luther King Jr. did that speech. Oh, yeah. Oh, you no, know, I was in the fourth row. And, and you wonder how many of them really were there. Why am I bringing this up on The God Show? Because I was there. <laughs> I was there historically in a sports moment, a theatrical moment that will never be forgotten, at least by people who really follow the NBA. And most particularly, people who follow the Phoenix Suns. Uh, if you follow this show, you know that we broadcast every week out of Phoenix, Arizona. And that's the home of the Suns. Nearly the champions this year in the NBA. But I was there not, not just because there was a championship tournament. Anybody can buy tickets for that. I wasn't just there for the debut performance of a rookie who turned out to be a Hall of Famer. Because anybody could have been there because they bought a ticket. I was there the night the Phoenix Suns gorilla. Yes, yeah, that mascot that everybody all over basketball knows. The night that the Phoenix Suns gorilla was created. The night that he became a part of the NBA and where he has become now since why he would be on something like The God Show? Oh, those are all good questions. And every one of them is going to be answered, <laughs> not by me, but by the original Phoenix Suns gorilla who didn't talk when he had the costume on. But he's going to be talking to you for the next hour here as my guest on The God Show, Henry Rojas. I'm so glad to see you here. Pat, it's really good to be here with you and, and an honor uh, 
to to be with you as a native Phoenician um, and knowing your uh, legendary status, it's an honor. Well, dating back to when the Hohokams left, <laughs> I was the reason. They, they were digging the canals. That was they, it. Huh? They looked up and they said, an Irishman? No, thank you. We'll move on and create a tribal area someplace else. <laughs> Tell everybody your memories of that night when you showed up at the madhouse on McDowell in your gorilla costume, but not as part of the Phoenix Suns. Yes. That night uh, became very surreal <clears throat> because... When? When was it? Uh, when did it actually happen? Yes. It would have been in 1979, uh, in the uh, probably October, November. Um, and the, the Suns always say I started in 1980, but but it's that's because that was the first contract year. I was actually working for a company called Eastern Onion, which was a play on Western Union, where uh, singing telegrams would be delivered to uh, people with birthdays, anniversaries, and restaurants. And that, that was a local firm, right? It was a local firm. They, and they had, <clears throat> a, they had a gorilla, they had French maids. They Whatever a, they would order a costume. Guy mm-hmm. with a guy in a, in a police outfit. Yes. Come yes. to your party. Yes. And I actually had told Eastern Onion one time, if you ever get a telegram to a Suns game, I'd like to have that one because I had seen people in the tuxedo go do the telegram and then stay and watch the rest of the game. And I was a, <laughs> uh, a diehard Suns fan as a young kid. And so obviously I realized my NBA uh, <laughs> career was not going to happen. I didn't become six foot eight as I had written down for a goal. Um, but I still loved basketball and loved the team. Who were the stars on that team? On the very first team? The one then. Uh, probably, I would say definitely Walter Davis, uh, Truck Robinson, um, uh, Kyle Macy, um, Jeff Cook. Uh, I, just, I just want people around the world who are basketball fans to know who we're talking about. Yes. And why there were stars in your eyes. Yes. And, and, um, and I went back as far as when I was a kid watching Connie Hawkins oh. and even, even Gail Goodrich. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Pat, I remember, I remember listening to the Suns games in my bedroom when there were only 12 games on TV and the rest of the 82 games were on radio. And Bob Vachet and Rod voice. Hunley. Yes. The first voice of the yes. Suns. And I remember the day... They came on the radio and they said Bob Vachet was killed in a car. I was a kid and that Hot Rod Hundley would take over. And that's when the innocence began to diminish for me as a fan. The second one was when they actually could trade a player. Connie Hawkins was traded to the Lakers. I was like, wait a minute, you can trade people? (laughs) And the innocence was gone. So I, um, I lived and died Phoenix Suns basketball in my bedroom during those games and would recreate what I heard for my family. You, you won't believe what happened. They'd see, how does this kid acting it out when he's listening to the game on the radio? That was my imagination. Well, and your imagination took you into the world of performing anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, so Hawk was my hero. The Hawk was my hero, and the way he palmed the ball, and I would hear, he swoops, he soars, he scores, and I'd have a handball in my hand, palming it, and dun- <laughs> uh, dunking it into a bongo drum turned upside down. 
And so I lived and died Phoenix Suns basketball. And having been a kid whose father died when I was four, basketball was one of those things that kept me alive. It kept me mm. looking forward to the next game. I lived and died Phoenix Suns. And so, um, so that night... Um, that day when Eastern Onion called me and said, we have a, a, sun, a telegram for a Suns game, I said, great. But they didn't tell me the people had paid extra for the telegram singer to wear a gorilla suit. Oh, so you had not worn that outfit never. before? Never. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I had never worn the suit before. Uh, I had to go down to a costume company to pick it up because it had been rented. And so I picked up the rented uh, gorilla suit and I tried to get out of it. Because I thought, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to be humiliated. Mm-hmm. I didn't, what nobody really knows is I really don't like mascots. <laughs> <laughs> I run from Baxter at the Diamondbacks games. I'm like, I just, I, I, I'm like, come on, be real. So um, I, um, I did not want to wear one either. Plus, I sweat at 60 degrees outside. Um, I'd be miserable. <laughs> and I tried to get out of it. I told them, I said, can somebody else please do it? And they said, nope, it's only a day or two from the telegram. So I went and picked up the suit. Um, I'm at home putting on the suit. And my daughter sees what's happening. She's only like four or five years old. She locks herself in the bathroom and says to, to my wife, tell me when dad's gone. And um, I get into my brown chocolate Toyota Corolla. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Do I, do I, I don't have anywhere to change into a gorilla suit. I'm not going to stop at a gas station and put it on. Um, and so I, I decided to put it on. And I, then I'm thinking, should I wear the whole suit with the mask or just the suit itself? Would it scare people to see the whole gorilla or a very hairy man from the neck down, you know? Uh, so I, I wore the whole thing in the car, went, drove oh, down to the Coliseum, oh. go into the back, hand the seat location to an usher. Nobody else can see me. And he's supposed to come back and tell me where I'm going to go to deliver the telegram. And he never comes back. So I'm trying to stand there in being inconspicuous in a gorilla suit. And um, that's when I saw you back in the back. I, I was standing uh, under the basket and I, saw, I turned and saw you waiting to go. And I thought, no, wait, a minute, this can't be a draft pick. That all of a sudden is coming <laughs> out link. to audition, right? And I was with one of the business guys from upstairs. And what happened? So I'm thinking I need to spot the usher that was supposed to take me to the person to deliver the telegram. So I kind of went out near the opening to the, uh, to the court. Now people can see me. So I decide, you know what? This is uncomfortable. I better just sit in a seat. And so I sat in a seat. And now, obviously, people are seeing there's a gorilla around, you know, and um, I could have I would have gotten up and gotten out, except for the game. The timeout was over. The game started. So I would have been a disruption during the game to step on the edge of the court. So I um, I waited till a timeout was called and I stepped onto the purple sideline of the court and I started to do that cool little jog as if you know you're in the crosswalk and the light turned green and you hustle off yeah so i'm hustling off the court and they start playing music and back then uh stan richards the public address announcer they never played uh verb they never played music with words it was always background music really instrumentals and an empty court 
Um, and so I had the entire court. I'm, I'm heading out, and they started playing music. I know they see me. The fans see me. I better make something out of this. So I stopped like I was frozen, mm. started to shuffle onto the court, started dancing. And I was also known as the little kid that had dancing rhythm, and I started moving. Crowd starts to clap as I'm dancing. I leave. Security guards grab me at the tunnel area and said, and I said, you don't have to throw me out. I'm leaving. They know, no, dude, you can dance. Stay, stay for the next time out. And then that's when the son's guy, yourself, everybody's watching this. I'm watching it too going, what is happening? Next thing you know, I'm pushed out onto the court. And I started dancing again. In center quarters, I Yes. And, um, and I, there, I, I was out there, and one of the officials says, um, I don't know if you remember this, but they tossed me the ball. No. And I went to the free throw line. And I, I, I still, it's kind of a blur. I don't know if it was that game or a game, a subsequent game. Yeah, that's what happened. But I remember thinking, I'm going to shoot. Um, I could barely feel the ball because of the black gloves. And I realized suddenly I was going to go through my legs and I realized the gorilla crotch goes a lot longer than my own. It's gone to the <laughs> knees. So I, I dipped, I took it through the legs. It's in my hand and I flipped it up and I made the very first shot. No. Oh. Yeah. Well, they went crazy. Then. Oh, they went crazy. I went home. KOY Radio. Uh, Sandy Gibbons, Bill Haywood. I wake up to my alarm. They are talking about the gorilla. Did you see the gorilla at the game last night? Yeah, who was that guy? And I'm jumping on my bed. That was me. Well, it's and a phrase you rarely ever hear post game. <laughs> Did you see the gorilla at the basketball game last night? And I remind the folks, by the way, who are listening around the world, that the Phoenix Suns, that was the first and for a long time the only major league team that we had in Phoenix, Arizona. Yes. Yes. A number of people, including the newspaper here, said, oh, what are you doing? This town isn't ready for that kind of thing. Major League NBA basketball? And we were considered like the Boston Celtics of the West. You know, very quiet, subtle. It wasn't a wild crowd. Yes, um, right. You know, polite. Just, very polite crowd. Very polite crowd, yes. And uh, didn't really cheer at free throws. But you became the mascot. Yes. And, and uh, the front office said, we got to have that guy back. Yes. And uh, created a costume. Yes. And, um, and so then, uh, post-Eastern Onion... Uh, I had a meeting at the Phoenix Market with Jerry Colangelo and someone else. Who at that time was the general manager, yes. later the owner. Yes. And then he, um, uh, the way the season started was they had a press conference at the university club. And they had all the press there that they were going to make a big announcement and um, I had already done the Rocky bit where I ran to the top of the stands. Yes. Um, and so they put rock, the Rocky music on after Colangelo gave a speech about how they found their missing link. And, <laughs> and at the university club, and I came out with the gorilla suit on with a suit over the gorilla suit. And there's a picture in the newspaper of Colangelo and the gorilla with a suit signing me to a contract for that first year. And of course, then... And even now, people will say, I love the gorilla. As a matter of fact, internationally, uh, it was voted on a number of occasions the number one mascot of any sport. And yet, still, there are people who say, what has that got to do <laughs> with the Phoenix Suns and desert? I mean, it's not even, 
It's not even a desert creature. It's not a southwestern creature. It's not. No. And it happened at the same time that the San Diego chicken came on the yes. scene. Yeah. So what is Good. what does San Diego and chickens have in common either? Before the gorilla, mm-hmm. though, there was a Rojas. Yes. Tell me about him. Um, I was the last of four. Grew up in in uh, West Phoenix in Maryville area. Uh, not a lot of money. What did your folks do? Uh, my mom was a single mom. My dad died when I was four, and she raised four kids, and we were a musical family. My mom played the piano. Uh, she was a natural at it. I mean, literally no lessons. She just started playing the piano and learning on her own, played by ear. Were you the only Rojas that leaned toward performance? No, all four of us. My mom and dad had four kids. They had a soprano, an alto, a bass, and a tenor. (laughs) That's family planning. (laughs) And we actually did sing harmony. Um, and we formed a band, a little group that played around the Phoenix area when I was in high school. I was the bass, um, and um, we had we were known for our our harmony. Was it a family of faith? What kind of a spirituality yes. environment did you grow up in? My mom and my dad helped start this little uh, Spanish-speaking Presbyterian church in uh, Central Phoenix in the in the projects. Uh, when they moved from Miami Globe area, they came to Phoenix, um, and I was I was the only child who was born here at Good Sam Hospital in Phoenix, and um, and then they bought a house out in the Maryville, one of the John F. Long homes out in the Maryville area, but they stayed going to that church. My mom played the piano uh, and the organ, and my dad sang in the choir, uh, and we had a lot of relatives that made up most of that church, and so singing was a huge part of that. My mom was extremely devout in her faith and um and she raised us that way um and so that was a huge part of a huge part of our life um and so yeah so that was that was definitely that was our background so music was a part when i was little um my oldest sister was a cheerleader at carl hayden high school and she um was a pop so when she would do the dances she would teach them to me and i was like their little mascot i was doing all the dances they found out this kid has some serious rhythm and we'd have family gatherings they'd put music on and wind me up and send me out and um and so the the dancing and the music uh the class clown that i became i mean it started to spill into school that i found out that i could make I would never get in trouble because I could make the teacher laugh, too. Well, you do understand that there's some people laughing right now uh, who <laughs> find it incredibly entertaining. This is a family in Tierra del Fuego <laughs> listening right now saying, you know what? I thought he said that they were Hispanic Presbyterians. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of unusual. Yes, uh, and and I used to have to live with that. I mean, they always assumed that because I was Hispanic that I must be a Catholic family. Um, but uh, but no, we were uh, we were Presbyterian, and um, and so yeah, so faith was a, a huge part. And in my own particular journey uh, as a uh, as a young man going through, uh, I was the the youngest of the four and. I, it became. It got to a point where I was the only. I was the one left at home, with my mom. They had all grown up, gone on. Uh, we were far in age, and I got depressed. 
uh, as a young person. I was in high school, and um, now you're talking about clinical depression. No, not clinical. I, I, I shouldn't have said that. Being a, a <laughs> I, I wouldn't say clinical. I felt alone. Oh, I felt okay. some loss, and I didn't go to school one day. And I went to. Uh, I walked a different direction and ended up at a Salvation Army. Seriously, and I sat in the chapel, and this guy came in there who was the pastor of this Salvation Army, and I and he says, "Hey, what are you what are you doing?" And and I said, "I I just didn't feel like going to school today." And I and he and now he probably would have gotten in trouble if he did this. He goes, "You want to go hang out with me today?" We got I got in the car with him, and he took these Sesame Street puppets and went and did this show for these handicapped children oh. at a handicapped school, and I watched this. And I found out with him that I could do all the Sesame Street characters. I could do the voices. And um, and I, I just, something happened in me that I was like, you know what? Life is bigger than my little world. And I wanted to know and understand who God was. Separate from my family's teachings and everything. I mean, that was great that it was grounded. But I, I felt a, a seeking and a desire. So you were... You were an entertainer with a spiritual message. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was more important to me because I figured there were a lot of people out there in the world like me as a young man that were trying to find meaning. And, and by the way, as we, as we continue with this hour that is a dream for a host, that is fun, adventure, stories, sports, show business, uh, and several messages coming up from Henry Rojas' pulpit. Uh, what? <laughs> what, what? Wait, the gorilla has a pulpit? Well, yeah, just stand by. Because first you've got to hear about if he was growing up in a Presbyterian family and then was inspired with the Salvation Army then how is it that he could possibly miss an opportunity to become a Catholic and actually meet the Pope in Rome? I think you should explain that, Henry Rojas. Sure. When I was with the Suns, they were going to do some exhibition games in uh, in Italy. And um, they had actually, the team had gone to Israel first. And the people in Israel said, where's the gorilla? Oh, and they realized oh. they left without me. Um, in, not in, I mean, intentionally, it wasn't an accident. Uh, and called me and said, do you have a passport? I said, no, we'll, <laughs> we'll find one. Um, and um, <laughs> so we got me, uh, got, they got me on a plane. I, I, I couldn't make the Israel trip. So they were like, they're not going to go without the gorilla to Rome, or to Italy. So I went to Italy. I was in Rome, and we were staying at the Jolly Leonardo. Uh, me and Kyle Macy, the only ones without wives or girlfriends, and that was real romantic. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, John McLeod, who was the coach and a devout Catholic, assumed since he knew I had some you know, spiritual nature and religious, he just assumed everyone's Catholic, I guess, and, and especially being Hispanic, comes and knocks on my door very, very early in the morning my hotel room door. And I'm like, yes. And he goes, Henry, it's John. And I said, yeah. And he goes, we're going to the summer residence of the Pope. Get up. And I'm like, it's okay, John. I'm tired, man. Oh. 
I was oh. 24, 23, 24 years old. Wait a minute. You're just telling that story to an Irish Catholic. <laughs> My aorta just closed. <laughs> and, I'm sure you, the Pope would have done the same thing to you, me. But you, <laughs> you really didn't understand the significance. I didn't. I really didn't. And, um, and so I, uh, <laughs> I do so now. And I regret that, but I look back, that's, you know, that's kind of like my whole career was darn near famous, but always just missing it, just a little off, you know? Um, and so, uh, so it turned into a joke later on that I, I, I turned down a, a visit to the Pope, but, uh, but yeah, that was unfortunate. My understanding is, because I've known John McLeod, too, over the years, that he told me quietly, the Pope took him aside and said, where's the gorilla? Uh, <laughs> and you rarely ever hear that from a pope. Very rarely, yes, yes, yeah. Everyone wanted to know where the gorilla was. Tell me about, tell me about with the fact that I've known you so long. Uh, we met, though you didn't know it, uh, that night when you were introduced to the crowd that you just were talking about the first time that you... Uh, we're in the uh, in the basketball arena in a gorilla suit, but uh, I've known you that long, and yet I don't know. Outside of the people who inspired you in the world of basketball, in particular, Connie Hawkins, uh, the people that we've talked about in the past here, that were the uh, uh, Dr. J, mm-hmm. uh, the people that were. Great human beings, outstanding, skilled athletes. But did any of them inspire you spiritually? From uh, from the team, not really. Anybody uh, <laughs> in the NBA? Um, no, I felt very much more alone in this. Oh, um, I felt like I mean, you think about it. There aren't a whole lot of Hispanics in the NBA, um, and I grew up. You know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and my my dream, once I got a hold of my own purpose and my own um, goals in life, I decided that what I was going to do was going to be a public speaker, that I was going to be a communicator, that I would, I, I and I actually thought I would go and get my psychology degree because I got really into the counseling part of it. Uh, and help, and I wanted to help other people. So I decided I'm going to go get my counseling degree, and then I'm going to go to seminary and get my religious training, and then I'm going to go into satirical comedy within the church, which was a wide open field. <laughs> well, no, but it would I, that's be what terrific. I wanted to do. What yes. a great career! Yes. So, so when the gorilla thing happened, I was in the middle of getting my psychology degree, and it got derailed. And I thought this was a terrible accident that occurred. Um, I was like, had to talk to God and go, God, you forgot. The plan. I was going to get my counseling, my psychology degree, uh, spiritual training, and then go into satirical comedy within the church. And I figured the church needs a stand-up comic to deliver the message. And and what happens for 10 years with the sons, I can't speak. How strange is that? Mm. And I thought I felt trapped in that. But when I performed in that moment, I loved it. I mean, when... It was back before the days, Pat, when the wave, remember when the wave started? I was pre-wave, okay? (laughs) Um, I would, uh, Cotton Eye Joe came on, the music came on. I remember the very first time I went out there and the the fans were cheering 
And I told everybody to sit down. The entire arena sat down by me, my hands telling them to sit down. And then I stood them up section by section. But it wasn't a wave. I, was, I stood one section, stood another section, and left the, third, the fourth section hanging. Did they give you power? It gave me so much power. I was looking at my hands going, wow, you know? And then I, I did the bump, bump, bump in the song during the dance, and I looked over at that section sitting down, and I rose them up. The place went completely crazy. The Suns win that game with a last-second shot, so this mystique started that when the gorilla is here, the Suns win. Mm. And so there is this thing that happened. So I loved that, but... When I got off of the court, out of the performance, I could not wait to get that thing off. Why? Because it wasn't me. That's not the way that I had wanted to do that kind of thing, was wearing a gorilla suit. Um, I, the feeling of not being able to breathe. I know This is, gonna, this is, this is what, what helps me put therapists to work, uh, that work, for, work with me. Um, I could breathe. When I was, I could breathe well when I was performing, but I could not breathe well in the mask when I wasn't performing. Mm. And I realized that the spiritual connection later on was about identity. It was about identity. And I, I started to realize also, when I, when I left the Suns, I was asked to speak. And I was like, what am I going to say? It was the very thing I always wanted to do my whole life. Do you know what happened? Is that I didn't show up. Really? I conveniently blocked it out. I think the fear of me actually doing what I longed to do and loved, and I got a letter from Colangelo about how they called him to say I didn't uh, show up at a speaking engagement, my very first one, and I had that letter from Jerry on my refrigerator forever to remind me that the very thing I feared the most that is connected to the very thing I want to do the most, and I never had let that happen again. Because the gorilla would always, always. be there. Yes. So... Um, so when I told my story that you're asking me about, and I realized I do have a story, but I found out something else. Everybody can relate to being known by their label or their title or their occupation and are suffocated by an identity and nobody knows who they really are about the God, except the God who loves them nakedly without their mask. And that has what has become the spiritual force and story behind me working with addicts, alcoholics. I've had, I've had ministers, I've had pastors confidentially come to me and talk to me about their disillusionment, but they wouldn't be able to tell their, their parish or their congregation because they would, the people would be shocked that they're having doubts about God, about themselves, about everything else. And so I give, I give uh, uh, a place, a safe or brave place for somebody to doubt and to question without an agenda. And that place, that place in Phoenix, Arizona, where Henry Rojas has a kind of pulpit, get this, this is not going to surprise you that it's not uh, St. Ecclesiastes or any of those, no. It's the community of the wild goose. Why, Henry? I heard about this gathering that met in uh, overseas uh, called the Wild Goose Festival. And I loved the speakers. And they were raw and inclusive. Uh, They made no divisions between faith and people. They were God people. 
it was a God show of sorts. And people would camp out. It was kind of like Burning Man, you know, and they would camp out and they would gather and talk around the campfires and it was called the Wild Goose Festival. And I always wanted to go there. I still haven't gone there. I want to make that trek. Now they're doing it in North Carolina and people will go and camp out and they have these discussions with these great speakers. And, um, and I listened to them say that the Celtic Christians used the wild goose as their symbol for Holy Spirit. The dove was too tame. The wild goose is wild and awkward. It lands terrible and it takes off terrible. But in community, it flies beautifully. We need each other. And so I thought, you know what, that's it. The community of the wild goose. And by the way, this little pendant I'm wearing, um, everyone in my community thought it was a wild goose when I bought them to when I, we do splash tisms. We just take them in the desert and throw water at them. Um, and um, and they, it, it, it looks like a wild goose, but I found out that the raven was cheaper. So I just tell them, I tell them all that the wild, it's a wild goose, but now they know. <laughs> Cannot be trusted. I give it away. I'm like, it's a wild goose. Oh, these days, when masks are a part of almost every newscast, yes, we're going to wear them. No, we don't. Yes, we have to. No, we don't. This person created a huge incident on a plane because he didn't want to wear the mask and so on. But a lot of your, a lot of your lessons have to do with the masks that we've been wearing all of our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they can relate to the suffocation feeling um, in, in not listening to the deepest desires of their heart but being fearful that they can't walk away from how they've been known. Because then what? What about the money I'm making doing this? Everybody wants me to do this. People would say, how can you walk away from this? We love you like that. We love the gorilla. They didn't say we love you like that. They'd say we love the gorilla. And you make so much money. And I think, and I think you'll be able to relate to this too, Pat, so much, is that when people would say, you can do anything you want in that character, no, that's not true, because that character had a reputation, too. And I protected that character's mystique and its nature, because that was not me. I gave it the life, you know. And then I started to realize later on, as I started to make more sense of it, wait a minute, the gorilla did not make me. I made the gorilla. You can toss that suit out there. It ain't going to dance. And, and so the characters that we create, so your occupation is not when we when we leave that we're taking everything that is valuable with us no matter where we go in family and relationships and other jobs but when you think that made me same thing with an alcoholic or addict i was just telling a group that today at a at a treatment center i said listen drugs and alcohol sit there waiting for you to breathe life into it it has no life in it whatsoever until you make it have life but it's nothing without you and you're still everything without it, without your title, without your job, without your role. Um, and that is the life-giving breath that people are taking that comes sometimes as just poking holes in their jars like a bug in a jar. If I can just start poking holes one by one where they can breathe a little easier, then maybe they can listen to the divine and realize that, yes, I walked away from the gorilla, but it was necessary to be masked in that role to be able to come to where I am at. 
How long did that take? How long did it take you to get away from the closet where the gorilla costume hung and dare to walk out with a Henry Rojas message? Once I actually verbalized to the Suns team chaplain, Dallas Demet, uh, in a private conversation that I didn't want to do this, and I verbalized it, then it took three years. It took three years to be able to walk away from that. Because if I'm not doing that, then who am I? Then what happens? Inside, I believed there was more, but there's always that question, will I be able to do what I dream to do without that? And I've, I've seen people do that with drugs and alcohol. Will I be able to do my art if I'm not high? Will I be able to, you know, and so it took three years as the gorilla, the sons to walk away, but then it's taken my entire life to unpack and unfold this thing, even to this point, And I've not talked about this, but when the sons made it to the finals this um, year, this year was a new period for me because they have sucked so bad for so long. I haven't had to deal with this. <laughs> But the minute they got to the finals, I started getting the calls from all over the place. Channel 15, you know, Channel 12, the interviews, and I loved it. And you know what happened? I had a moment. And a lot of people don't talk about these raw moments, but I had a moment where I couldn't breathe. I had a little panic attack because I thought the entire city of Phoenix is going to want me to put that back on emotionally. Mm. And I haven't been that for so long. And I was talking, I work with a lot of uh, therapists and we, we work with people together. And I called a couple of my trauma therapist friends and I said, what is happening me, to me right now? And I could literally feel the warmth on the face and coming down to the chest. And they're like, it sounds like you're putting on a mask, Henry. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. I'm, I, I might be required to be something I'm not for others. Instantly, I woke up again in my inner being, and I'm like, I'm not the gorilla. I portrayed the gorilla. Are you also... And it's part of my story. I can embrace it. Are you Mm -hmm. also, though, a non-entertainer? I mean, you're in that pulpit, and you are... You are attempting to capture the total audience that you have in front of you, whether it's six people, 600, however large your audience is uh, at that moment, at that time, for that lesson in life that yes. you have. Yes, all of that is a culmination in, into that moment. And I think one of the things I loved about and got value from my style was I learned as a speaker, I am not, I never operate from notes. I might have two or three concepts, but if I, if I uh, uh, bake it before and then serve it, um, I, it's, it's not going to be me. So I would call myself an improvisational preacher because I take what's there. The 10 years with the sons of reading a crowd and the energy and the thousands and switching gears at the moment taught, without speaking taught me how to do that in a group because I can plan the best message. But to be able to say that's not what's needed right now. And I was talking to my dear friend, uh, Jim Hansen, who is a uh, spiritual mentor at Spirit in the Desert and Carefree. He's Lutheran. 
And uh, and he said, um, he said, Henry, he says, because I'll go, you know what? I, I kind of went a completely different direction. He goes, what we come for is we are watching you in your element. And we never know exactly what direction it's going to go. But something moves us. But we want to be there to see what happens on any given Sunday. And I was like, thank you for validating that. Because improvisation in my industry of ministry or anything else is not valued because you're supposed to be theologically correct. And I'm getting up there saying the hell with it. I'm going to be make it about God and spirit and invoking this moment. And, um, and, and they get permission to do the same. I got pushed off the communion table one time by somebody because I was serving them and they took it from me to serve me. And then kind of shooed me away like I got it from here. And then that one served the next one. Another one came and that mm. one served. A, and they were in tears. But they felt the permission from me to pay attention to what is happening. You know, uh, God forbid I should ever be an inauthentic, awkward leader that is not a wild goose but only requiring everybody else to be authentic and to spill their beans. I have to be held accountable to being more human. You know, there's a scripture that says, though in very nature, God did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but lowered himself in the form. If, if in the Christian narrative, God thought it important to become human, why am I trying to be God? If you are thoroughly satisfied with your life as it is right now, do you resent the life that you had before? I embrace it now. That little panic attack just freed me. And, you know, they started calling me the OG, the original gorilla, right? <laughs> and I, I embraced it. So I thought, you know what? If they want the OG, I'll give them the OG. So when they interviewed me on TV, I had this plaid shirt with a little necklace and a hat. And I went and uh, I, the response that I got were, dude, that's a killer outfit. You look like you do look like an OG. And I thought, you know what? We play characters, but they never need to own us, identify us, and, and it's okay. The difference is somebody who is in their occupation, once they become aware, which awareness is what it's all about, they make a decision on whether they want to continue wearing that mask and then learn to know the difference between what they're portraying and who they really are. So when I tell an addict, an alcoholic, women with eating disorders was a big deal for about five years at a treatment facility, and I would tell them and their families after they laughed at my gorilla story, and then I got to the end, and I'll tell them, and this is what I learned, that you are not a marketing director, an accountant, a teacher, a cheerleader. You're certainly not a gorilla or a co-host or a host of a radio show, and you're not an addict or an alcoholic. That's what you do, but that's not who you are, and God loves you nakedly without your mask. As you look back, though, and as you've already acknowledged, you look back fondly at those 10 years in that gorilla suit. Give us a couple of stories, just, just briefly that you remember oh, so many. involved with one of the opponents with uh, an official, uh, the people that you used to use in your routine as, as, as the partner, unwilling though they might have been. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, <clears throat> there are so many. And 
in two hours, I titled about 250 experiences on, for my son-in-law's and there's more there. And I Give thought, us a couple wow. now. Because there are people right now who are listening in different parts of the world who have never been associated with professional basketball and are hearing about the mascots sure. and the gorilla in particular now. Tell them what you did. Okay, so, so what I did was more satire. Um, and I, the best description I ever heard for what my character was was Tom Ambrose, our public relations director. He's another guy that I really, really loved uh, back then. I was in the Jewish Community Center where the sons used to practice. And I was in the, in the locker room getting dressed for a camera shoot. Tom's in there with me watching me change from a, <laughs> my street clothes into my gorilla uh, outfit so I'm still talking to him he's just burst into laughter and he goes first of all I can't believe I'm watching this transformation and it's going really slow um, it's not exactly like, like a Marvel character you know um, <laughs> and the second thing he said was I just realized what your character is and I said what is that Tom and he said you're you're not a person trying to be a gorilla you are a gorilla trying to be human mm. And so the gorilla character was trying to portray a human and it would not necessarily come off perfect. Perfect, And I think that's what endeared itself to people. It was those little moments of surprise and those kinds of things. One incident, I don't know why I'm thinking of this one, but um, when I first started to contract out to other teams around the NBA and they knew me as the Phoenix Suns gorilla, now I was just the gorilla with an NBA jacket, red, white, and blue, and I'm going into... The roughest one was Cleveland, okay? You don't start a performance in Cleveland without getting booed first anyway, you know? <laughs> of all places, I have a reporter from the um, uh, fair, uh, what was it, Plain Dealer newspaper in Cleveland. They meet me off the plane. They're in my dressing room. He's following me all along. It has gotten big. I think it was post-Italy. I had gotten written up in the front page in the Italian paper on my routines, um, so here I am in Cleveland, and the announcer makes the mistake. He doesn't read my introduction the way I wrote it. He introduced me as the Phoenix Suns gorilla in Cleveland, and oh. they had thousands of people booing me as I come out. So I did the first half of the game um, with them not liking me. I go into the dressing room, and the plain dealer guy says, how are you feeling right now? And I said, well, I'm, you know, the tomatoes are about to come out. We'll see if they come out in the third or the fourth quarter. Um, and I thought I got to pull all the stops out. And one of the bits that I used to do was I would come out as Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. And I learned how to moonwalk before I pulled it off in Phoenix and got, I mean, brought the house down when I actually did the dance and then did the moonwalk. So I'm in Cleveland. I'm like, I better do the Michael Jackson. I put the white glove on. I get out. Very first time out in the third quarter. They loved it. I ended the game in Cleveland with a standing ovation in Cleveland. Mm. So that to me is a trophy I hold dear, is that I got booed and a standing O in Cleveland. Somebody else wanted to do the moonwalk with you, too, yes. somewhere. I was, doing the, I was the sole entertainment at the Indianapolis All-Star Game. And Isaiah Thomas with the Pistons came mm. over to me and said, hey, go. He says, if you're good, are you going to do Michael Jackson tonight? And I said, yes. And he says, when you do it, please do it near the bench because I want to be able to do the moonwalk with you so I can show these guys that I can moonwalk. So I actually have a picture where I went near 
Isaiah Thomas. And in the background of this picture is Larry Bird and Michael Jordan watching me and Isaiah Thomas oh. do the moonwalk. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And there aren't many people who play in the NBA who have those kinds of memories. Right. Right. And, I, and, and, and I, what I love about it, too, is that the fans helped create the character. It wasn't just me. We're nothing without the fans. If the fans don't like it, it's not going to happen. And I think that they needed to be honored. And when I left the Suns, every seat in the Coliseum had a press release of me thanking the fans for helping to create a character that was an extension of them. And I think, just if you don't mind me just sharing this, um, when the Suns went to, uh, got to the finals, there was a post on a Facebook page that was growing up in West Maryville. And it was a lot of people that said, hey, Henry Rojas came from our area. He was one of us. And somebody posted on there to me, you, you don't know this, but we were sitting in the very upper deck one time after my grandmother died and I was young. And my dad and my grandfather took me to the game as comfort and a distraction. He said, you looked up into the crowd, and for some reason, you went up the stairs and went all the way to the top, came right to us and hugged me and went back down. And he says, and I don't know if somebody told you to do that or what happened, but it meant so much to me. And I'll tell you what, Pat, that's when I realized I was straining through the mask and not being able to speak to let people know that they were valuable and that they mattered, even though they're at a basketball game. And a gorilla... A gorilla in jungle life, a gorilla in the zoo, is a fearsome creature, Mm -hmm. Uh, fascinating, but still powerful, and nobody wants to get close. But the kids did. Yes. They wanted to be held by you. Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, Some of them got scared. When I'd have, my mask was made to my face. It was actually made in Hollywood and molded on Mm. the inside of my face so that it went pressed up against and, and this little kid comes running up to me, and his, he, he was kind of trembling a little bit. His dad says, oh, it's okay. He's not real. And oh, I was offended. Oh. Uh, and, and he goes, he's not real. And so I was like, well, we'll fix that real quick. And, um, and I, I stuck my tongue out through the mask, and you could see my eyes, and they both freaked out. <laughs> Don't ever say I'm not real. <laughs> not just because of the memories and the way you – the way you refreshingly tell them to us and share with us. Uh, you have a good life now, I know, and a satisfying life with what you do for other people with your counseling. But do you ever stop and think, if only I had stayed one more year, if only, if only I had decided to do something even bigger with the gorilla costume, leaving the spotlight, regrets? Absolutely none. And I'll tell you why. One of the things I've realized in this life is we can start anything. It takes a lot to start something and make something popular, famous, spectacular, be an entrepreneur, get into a relationship, but I think it takes more courage to walk away from something than to start something. In the face of all what you might, the uncertainty, toxic relationships, addictions, 
And by the way, we're all addicted. We're addicted to ourselves. And, and so to walk away from something and to know what that did, it opened up so many things for me to be able to communicate the way I'd always wanted to communicate. So, no, I never had any regrets of, about leaving. And, um, and, I, and yet now... To embrace all of that, I am loving it this year. Post-panic attack, I feel no stress. I feel no, well, you should know more about me. No. If somebody loves talking about the gorilla now, they, they, their story matters too, Pat. Every fan's story about the gorilla matters. Every son's person matters. I called, I called Harvey Shank. Kenny Glenn, Ronnie Williams, who started with me at 12 years old, who was my heart and soul, who watched the fans. He loved the fans so much. He would whisper to me, there's somebody over there who would, who would want to see you. He was my eyes and ears on the court. And I told them, your story matters, not just mine. It's, a family. it's a family right now who is saying, I loved hearing the stories about what you did then. Do something now. And let's really put the pressure on because you've got two minutes I'll go. till the end of the on. show. There's a family right now in Stockholm, and uh, their uh, their son is 17 and addicted to opioids, fentanyl every once in a while, really bad mm-hmm. stuff. Help them. Well, I believe everybody in the family plays a role, and everybody's story matters. So after, if you can get them to a safe place first to keep them alive, that person is usually usually seeing the world as it is. And the other parts of the family don't want to see the world as it is. And that person will turn on themselves and begin to cut to be able to use because their perception is being doubted. Let's believe what they're seeing in the world because there is a lot of once you can get their body safe first and then you begin to they begin to look at themselves not as an addict or an alcoholic you know we proudly state our condition in religious life it's i'm a sinner right um in the addicted world i'm an alcoholic and i'll hear really religious people say i don't want to say that because that's not who i really am of course it's not who you really are but when you come humbly to a place of recognizing the human condition, you say it with great pride because you realize that's my condition, but it's not who I am. And to be able to take that kid and to help the family to see, hey, listen, we have a problem too. Each one of us, we're human too. Family in Youngstown, Ohio, even closer than Stockholm, is right now saying, McMahon, what are you talking about for crying out loud? You're running out of time. I don't know how to get in touch with Henry Rojas, R-O-J-A-S. HenryRojas.com. It's as simple as that. I didn't lose any of the narcissism. Henry at HenryRojas.com. If, if .com could have been Henry Rojas, Henry Rojas at HenryRojas.com, Henry Rojas. Uh, I'd have done it. But and, uh, go to the website, HenryRojas.com, and you will find the places to find Community of the Wild Goose. And you know that you can always find us here. It's called The God Show, and I'm Patrick Mayer. 